even have a matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt. And I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes will rejoice and being able to drop it, but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through. I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we have finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activity with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is 12 Angry Men, the 1957 movie, uh, the first movie ever directed by Sidney Lumet. And uh, I am not going to waste time here. There's a good chance this is the most overrated movie ever made. And I like, I I like to start off big and then to, you know, like diminish a little bit. Um, Uh, Coming out swinging, I like it. (laughs) It's not like the Meryl Streep thing where we just had to like fool around for 20 minutes and then get into, you know what really grinds my gears anyway. Uh, no, I don't like going into the overrated, underrated thing too much because those words don't actually mean anything. It is impossible to come up with a meaning of overrated or underrated. The data no one agrees on. Who are we talking about overrating, underrating, whatever. But here are the here's the data I'm looking at. If you look at the two great online edifices of charting popular taste... Uh, IMDb and Letterboxd. I'm leaving Rotten Tomatoes out because they they do a different ranking system anyway. So that would be three, but just to do these two, uh, which rank on the sort of star system. This movie is the seventh ranked movie on Letterboxd by users. It's the fifth ranked movie on IMDb by users. Of all the movies, of, of all the movies, it is five and seven. This is wild to me. Because I wouldn't even say it's the seventh best movie of 1957. Matt, I came up with a list of some movies from 1957 which I think are better than this one. And which I I have not, you know, gone through and watched every movie from that year. But would you like to hear my incredibly petty list? God, I love pettiness. Yes, please. (laughs) Alright, so my petty list includes Knights of Kiberia, Wild Strawberries, The Cranes Are Flying, The Seventh Seal... 310 to Yuma, A Face in the Crowd, 
that year's Best Picture winner, Bridge on the River Kwai, Run of the Arrow. There are two Ingmar Bergman movies from 1957, which I think are better than this movie. I Even though we've <clears throat> or you left out Rotten Tomatoes for, for good reason of that sort of general overview, I will mention to folks that it does have a 100% on the tomato meter <laughs> and a 97% audience score, which... I don't know, that one seems even more insane somehow. That's very high. So, look, I don't wanna I don't wanna make it sound like I don't think this is a good movie. I think it is very clearly a good movie. There are so many things about it that are good. Um, when you put this eighty seventh on your American movies list, that does seem a lot more palatable than fifth all time. All movies wherever, whenever. Um, so I just I just wanna look at it and and start thinking about what is it about this thing that makes it so well-remembered in the first place? Why is it that we have so many positive thoughts? Why is it that this, frankly, a little movie, a low-budget uh, picture from a first-time director, a great director, but a first-time director nonetheless, uh, with only, I mean, if you count Lee J. Cobb, you've got one and a half genuine movie stars in it. What is it about it that makes this thing so well-remembered and so well-favored in the eyes of audiences? Uh, it's short, which is nice. It's old, old in the sense that it's black and white, and this is inevitably one of those, one of those movies that people see um, when they're fairly young, and they're like, oh, this is an old movie that I like. They used to make good movies back then, too. Uh, it is overwhelmed with mic drops and cheap psychoanalysis that's easy to keep up with. Uh, it is obsessed with actors. This is definitely, for all the interesting stuff that Lumet is doing with this movie, as a director of, of a moving camera or of close-ups or of production design a certain way, whatever, this is a movie that lives and dies on its actors. And, maybe most of all, and I will confess that I have probably read too many anti-West Wing screeds recently, and I did just hate watch The Trial of the Chicago 7, but man, this really feels like a prelude to Sorkin. And whether, whether or not you're on board with the Aaron Sorkin-style story, I'm not even talking about the guy's, like, politics. I'm not talking about the, the anti-AOC stuff. I'm not talking about... Uh, the, you know, the perfect ending I'd write for the Trump campaign would be all the Republicans saying that's enough and we can't do this anymore. Forget that. Forget the political stuff. Forget the guy who is basically Jonathan Franzen for film Twitter. Just the guy who believes that the wisest and coolest head, the best arguer, the one who can make his case the best, will meritocratically win the prize. These people tend to be a certain kind of professional. They tend to be an up-the-middle kind of person, a middle-class guy. Um, and the sound of the person's voice and the respectability that they project are as important as those things. Uh, there is a, a loving portrait of a flawed institution, but by golly, we know that our institutions are always going to come out and do the right thing, that they will triumph in the end. This is a profound fantasy. And 12 Angry Men, as much as it, you know, does a lot of work in trying to pretend at this certain level of authenticity, 
is a profound fantasy, and there is a certain, like, axis of cultural evil in this country, in New York, Los Angeles, and the Beltway, and all of those are sort of, like, sunk into this movie in a certain way. There's the absolute fantasy of L.A., there's the, you know, sort of pretentious uh, self-congratulation of New York, there is the political fantasy that comes from D.C., all of these silly values are here. All of them are in this sort of pre-Sorkin-esque movie. Um, what makes this a fantasy? Well, in the space of about 90 minutes, 11 white men change their mind about an 18-year-old uh, kid from a bad neighborhood, a person of color who is supposed to have killed his dad. That's a fantasy. That's nuts. That's, that's nuts now. That was nuts in 1957. It is deep silliness. It is highly silly. And no matter how many shots of sweaty men or bad fans or thunderstorms or whatever, however many of those you put in there, this is not a hard-boiled kind of movie. This is the kind of thing that appeals to people's need to be comforted and this sort of fantasy that comes from needing to be comforted in the same way that a fairy tale is comfort. And of course, neither one of them creates action or makes them better people. Um, that's my that's my opening screed about 12 Angry Men. I appear to have come in hot this afternoon. Um, you I'm, wanna, I'm you still wanna... dying at the Franza line, but <laughs> I, I, I want to add to the screed. Um, okay, yeah. Where, I don't know, this also, it makes a certain sense in 1957 in a way that it absolutely does not for Aaron Sorkin. So I want to add to that screed first that Sorkin is just worse. Um, but second, I don't know. There's a paternalism to it all that really just makes me bristle too. Even if it did happen, then it's just a white savior narrative. Um, and I don't It Like it all comes down to Henry Fonda has morals and like, the fantasy that that would actually change the opinion of 11 other people rather than they beat him into submission. There's that, but also it's just, I, I guess this is why it makes a certain amount of sense in 57, like the height of the Eisenhower suburban years where it's like, you know, if we do reconsider and look at the, um, you know, less privileged among us, maybe we can make some change and like we could save this institution that maybe is important to us. And like, it's still, actually redeemable in some way uh, that doesn't play in 2020 we we know <laughs> we know it didn't play then really but <clears throat> i don't know thinking of it as that that old like, it makes a certain amount of more sense but which is also why it's deeply paternalistic but like that also just like that i don't know it feels real icky um and right it's an 18 year old non-white poor kid and like there's a different way to play this movie where it's like why is he why is his fate why is his life the outcome of his life in the hands of 12 middle class middle-aged white men like i mean that's what happens but i i don't know there's just something about it's that fantasy of, well, they can be moral and eventually make the world a better place. And it's like, no, they need to be out of the juror seats. <laughs>
it is a it is a good movie. And again, it's it's a movie which I find I find the reaction to it a little bit more obnoxious than the movie itself because the movie is one of those things where if you like sort of squint, you can say it, it has its heart in the right place that it I mean it does it does believe that, you know, racism is bad and it does it does look at the flaws in the in the men and from their social class and things like that. And I think it does try to have an eye insofar as a lot of fifties movies were trying to have an eye on, on what it looked like to be from, you know, a a respectable working class. And when I say respectable, I mean that you can like live a life and people don't like shame you for being working class, which I don't think is the case anymore. Um, up to the I sort of upper middle class thing where you see like the Henry Fonda and Robert Weber characters or the E.G. Marshall character. Anyway. No, I was just going to say, I think that's kind of like what I was trying to get to is too, but like didn't put in the right words. So just like the movie's fine. Like I, I, like I can see the movie and I understand it and I'm like, okay, cool. Um, but yeah, hearing that it's like so highly ranked by other things. I didn't know that, but it's just like, what? It's a little weird. Why? And also now? <laughs> it's a little weird. Um, here's where, here's the part where I say the good things about the movie. I really do think the acting in this is great. So if you are someone who's like going to rate this movie very highly and, and you want to do that based on the acting, that seems to me to be a highly reasonable thing to do. Um, I think there should be a Best Casting Oscar. I think it'd be fun to do it retroactively. And for 1957... I would have no issue with a Best Casting Oscar that went to 12 Angry Men because this is a movie with Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, and 10 character actors. Um, Some of them who are perfectly, like, famous people. Um, I mean, John Fiedler maybe is the best known of them because he voiced Piglet, but there are people uh, like Jack Warden who have a couple Oscar nominations. There are people like Edward Binns and, uh, Jack Klugman who were in major movies. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of people in this. Something I really like about this, I did the research on this once just out of curiosity, but I think seven out of 12 of these guys were in World War II in some way. Um, like served in the, in the military in, in some form or fashion during the, during the war. And I think that's, it's kind of an interesting thought. And then you had eight, because George Voskovic, the, the immigrant, um, fled Czechoslovakia when Hitler came in. So he was somebody who was face-to-face with it as well. So they're like, what, 75% of these people? And the, uh, there are at least two who would have been much too old for service at that time. These are people who, you know, you can imagine them in 1957 being 10 to 12 years out from college, high school, World War II, whatever, and kind of like settling into the into the rhythm of your middle middle age or the, your early middle age, as it were. Um, it seems to me like a good set of, of men to choose just because they seem right. And so much of good casting is just, do they seem right? Are they right for the part? And it, it is a room full of men who I think are right for the part and who are right for New York, too, because, of course... Um, in New York, they don't all look like Henry Fonda. A lot more people in New York look like uh, look like Jack Klugman, or look like Martin Balsam, or look like um, Jack Warden, or or so on. Like these are these are people who are not all movie star handsome. In fact, only a couple of them are. Some of them have bad hair. Some of them 
Uh, some of them have weird noses, but they they all look right. Um, and to me, that's that's a triumph of its casting. And of course, we can say all the good things about being willing to just absolutely go ham on close-ups, which this movie does. Uh, and, and Lumet, I think, does a very good job directing it. I mostly want to come in hot on this one just because... Not because it's bad, actually, you know, like, I'm not trying to be that guy, but... I don't know, it seems like it deserves a little bit <laughs> of scrutiny that it's not... It's not always getting, just to, just to begin with. That seems right to me, I mean... I don't know, just thinking about it as a portrait of, like... What does happen when you put 12 different people together in a juror booth and, like, have actual conversation about morals and ideology and, like, <clears throat> what is the right thing to do here? I mean... In terms of the acting, in terms of the shooting, in terms of like just having that setup, I think I think I like that's compelling. Um, I like the idea. Um, I think, as you said earlier, like it has its heart in a good place. Like I think that's pretty clear. Um, it's just especially, you know, what sixty years on. Um, I don't, like the movie itself. I think we see it, we understand it, and like understand that okay it had its heart in a good place but it's also from 1957 and it needs a reappraisal ideologically in that way now um so that it's not put fifth or seventh or whatever um but still understanding that like that's not the movie's fault um like i think the movie tries and you know we can debate how much it succeeds or not but like it seems to me what what you're coming in hot about and what i kind of agree with is like it's not the movie itself really. It's not its fault that that has happened. Yeah, so, like, again, it's one of those things, it's another debate that I don't love having, the sort of, like, well, people online say this, and, like, I don't know, at some point, the movie exists, and you can just, you know, talk about the movie. And for that reason, I kind of want to go into a thing about the movie that I find a little, a little facile. Um, and that, that has to do with our theme for this week, so we're going to talk about Persuasion, um, this, of course, is a movie in which there's a murder trial, the jury goes into the room, the first vote comes in. Oop, here we are. Sorry, go ahead. It's the best Jane Austen novel. There's a take. We should have started with that. That was That's coming in hot on its own terms right there. Um, we're just going to leave that one go and see what happens. <laughs> Wow. All right. So after being completely, completely upstaged by that, um, the first vote comes in 11 to 1. Um, Henry Fonda's character, juror number eight, says that if you've got a person's life and death in the, in the, you know, in the balance, then it's worth it to give it one good talking over before, before you, uh, you know, vote to execute someone, which they do. And from there, number eight, turns an 11 to 1 in favor of guilty to a 12 to nothing in favor of not guilty in about 90 minutes, which I think makes him the Jimmy Chitwood of jurors. Uh, so there are some things that he does. There is this interesting mix of original research, um, life experiences that the jurors have had, a lot of putting themselves in the shoes of the witnesses. There's some uh, condemnation of the defense attorney. There's uh, some condemnation of the witnesses themselves. There's a lot of, like, what would you do if you were there questions. There are long monologues. All of these things add up to persuasion. One of the things that I think is kind of 
aged pretty well about this movie, something that I think is very interesting, is that there are only about four people in the room who have really strong opinions about the case. You have eight and nine, nine played by Joseph Sweeney, and those two very quickly come around to not guilty. And then the holdouts are on the other side of the table, three and four, played by Lee J. Cobb, who is incredible in this as he is incredible in absolutely everything. This is, I mean, this is a great performance from him. Um, and E.G. Marshall is, is very good in this much more tamped down, uh, much more stockbroker performance than, than what Cobb is doing. Those two hold out. And then essentially you have the rest of the room, but there's also this third little, you know, bubble. And they very, very uh, appropriately sit on opposite ends of the table. You have Seven, played by Jack Warden, and you've got Twelve, played by Robert Weber. And those two, both of them come from a little more money. Warden is a, is a businessman who's making money. Weber is like on Madison Avenue or something. And those two are kind of ambivalent about the whole thing, and they kind of just see this as a thing they have to do, and they let their votes go back and forth just because they're trying to get out of there. Um, Warden's got the tickets to a baseball game. Weber is is just sort of going whichever way he, he feels. Um, and I think I think that's clever. It's smart to note, and this, I mean, this is something the movie deserves credit for, is that when you're persuading, there are not just going to be opposition, but there's going to be opposition of apathy as well. And that's an important thing that I think 12 Angry Men does a good job of noting, and it really spends a lot of time on that, too. Like, there are definitely, like, you could sit there and make a list of, like, most likely to to acquit, most likely to convict, just based on a half a dozen things. But to note that there are people you're going to have to convince who don't care if they're convinced is an interesting point, and that's something the movie is smart about. Um, things that I don't love about the persuasion as much, a lot of it is... I mean, heavy-handed, even <laughs> even by Hollywood movie standards. Um, there's almost always a mic drop somewhere. Like, there's a there's this hullabaloo about, you know, the switchblade the kid's supposed to have used to kill his father is supposed to be totally unique, and then Henry Fonda slams down an identical switchblade into the table. Um, there's this, there's a bit about... You know, people say, I kill you, and I want to kill you, or I will kill you, and they don't really mean it. And then Lee J. Cobb is like, no, that's not a thing. And then, like, ten minutes later, he tells Henry Fonda, I'll kill you. And everybody's like, ooh, like, everybody does that, and you're supposed to do that, and that's kind of obnoxious. I don't know. As far as persuasion goes, it is a movie about changing minds. I don't think this is a movie I need to, like, you know, do much more detail on, because I really do think it's one that just about everyone has seen at one point or another. Um, but it, it is a movie that does kind of believe that if you present evidence well enough, and if you have time and patience, and especially if you can bring in other people, especially if you can, you know, get other people on your side, make consensus then that's the thing that'll save the day. And and I do believe that is an American value, whether or not that's a thing that still exists 60 years after the fact, I don't know. Um, I think it definitely existed then. I do feel like the movie probably plays a little less like a fantasy then than it does now. Um, not that it was ever, again, hard-biting realism. 
but there there is a belief I think that you can you can change minds and sometimes it takes a little dime store psychiatry to get through it but in the end what's done is done the right thing comes through um and and Henry Fonda can can make your jury come out the right way after just giving someone a chance for for gosh sake you basically mentioned this i do think just to i guess kind of leave this with some <clears throat> it's a good movie um i i think in addition to the acting just kind of the character work of it that it is a sort of wide range of albeit all white men but just um kind of different experiences and and different class, different jobs, different upbringings, um, just different temperaments, despite the title. Um, like, I think it's a nice wide range to really show that, like, you know, as you said, it's not just going to be pure oppositional antagonism, but that there is going to be a wide range of character and any, uh, any group deliberation like this. Um, and that it's going to require different things for all of them. And, as ham-fisted as the movie can be, like that part of it, I think is good. Um, I think that's interesting, at least for <clears throat> for movie's sake, if if not necessarily realistic. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think we've probably covered this movie in our our own uh, <laughs> screeding about it, but uh, it, it is very much something about persuasion and about convincing others. So, what else do you have for me today? <laughs> So for persuasion, in, in sort of in honor of 12 Angry Men, I wanted to talk about movies that, I mean, most movies are about persuasion or changing people in one way or another. So what I wanted to do was pick movies which are about persuasion as argument and movies that change because there's a burden of proof somewhere, because someone goes through the, through the work of changing a mind or changing a perspective through what they've said or what they've done. Um... You know, I wanted I wanted that sense of argument, but I didn't necessarily want another legal movie in there. So the movies we're going to go with are movies which are not legalistic at all. Um, and one of them is expressly for children, in fact, and that is Ratatouille, uh, Brad Bird's 2007 Pixar project. And the other one is Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Norman Jewison's 1971 musical. Uh, I, we are not going to talk about Fiddler on the Roof for a second, but I do want to just say something very quickly. And I am limiting, I am limiting both of us to a single Tevya impression apiece in this episode. So choose wisely when you want to do that, because we cannot do just Tevya impressions for twenty to thirty minutes at a time. So I, I know where mine will come in. Choose one for you, and then we have to be good. Anyway. <laughs> Ratatouille, uh, a movie which comes from that period of Pixar history when you really do start to believe that they could make anything. Uh, not even necessarily like the height of Pixar, because I think that actually comes with their next movie, or, you know, maybe 1995 when they started doing features. Uh, but whatever but whatever case you've got there, um, this, is, this is when they're on that long heat check. When even the the weird premises just play out really, really beautifully. Um, Ratatouille is about a rat named Remy. Remy is living in France. He is separated from his colony, which is led by his father Django, and his uh, his brother Emile is is very close to him. 
even though Emil is a big doofus. Um, but they, they all have this sort of interesting relationship because Remy is not as distrustful of humans as his father, Django. Django is a, I almost said a very stereotypical rat, which is really something. <laughs> but like, Django is someone who understands that humans don't like rats and he sort of dislikes them and distrusts them in return. Um, Emil takes after his father a little bit, though he's mostly just hungry, which I appreciate. Uh, and of course, Remy is very sympathetic to this idea of what people can do and what people make and what he loves and what he's interested in is food. And part of it seems to be this natural gift, um, this natural ability to to smell things and to have an instinct for what goes together. And part of it is just self-education. Uh, mostly he has been worshiping at the altar of Gusteau, a late French chef who came to prominence on his own culinary brilliance, but also on this idea of anyone can cook. Um, unfortunately for Remy, <laughs> who might, who might have dreams of, you know, seeing Gusteau work, uh, Gusteau was killed by a bad review by France's most dangerous and, uh, feared restaurant critic, Anton Ego. He might be the most dangerous and feared because he's British in France. It's possible. Um, so the story is about Remy in a lot of ways. It's also about Linguini. Um, Linguini is a gawky, awkward, <laughs> um, garbage boy in the kitchen who turns out to be Gusteau's son by some woman who Gusteau was not married to. So I gotta say, there are not a lot of kids movies that use a paternity test as a major plot point, but this one definitely does. <laughs> and it definitely turns the movie in a lot of ways. Like the A plot is always about Remy, but the B plot is about Linguini, you know, turning himself into a new celebrity chef based on his legacy, his heritage, which he did not know about going into things, and which has been buoyed up by uh, Remy learning how to control him and using him as a puppet to make this exquisite food that turns the restaurant around. Um, obviously, you can see where this would go badly for everyone, because rats are not supposed to be in the kitchen. This is not, you know... This is not where one looks for a rat, even one that makes delicious food. Um, and that's, it's incredible to me how much of this movie doesn't feel stale. Uh, how much of this movie really does feel very exciting because the premise on its own is so simple. That there is a rat who wants to cook in a, you know, a fine dining establishment. And what works so well about the movie is not that it like leans in too far, to that idea, not like it doesn't go into it because that is the movie, but how it uses the rat in the kitchen as a way to create this wonderful perspective. Uh, this is a, a really inventive movie visually, I think, especially in that first scene where Remy accidentally falls through the skylight into the kitchen and almost gets killed about 15 different ways as he's scurrying around in the kitchen, which we see from a rat's eye perspective. We see that from that very low point of view, and there is this constant moving and skidding, and you can get the temperature of it, the smell of it, the speed of it, uh, the intensity. And and that's just one of the several sequences which I think do a really great job with that perspective. Um, so that's something cool about it. 
I don't know. Do I need to say a lot more about this movie? I don't feel, again, this is another one I really feel like most people have come across. Uh, I was sort of looking back at our other replacement options so far. and I don't know. Besides Beauty and the Beast, this might be the one that people are most familiar with so far. I mean, there are a couple others that could be in there. And I'm not <clears throat> considering the AFI list, but I'm fairly comfortable with the type of people in general that will listen to us are familiar with mid-2000s Pixar movies. Yeah, that's that seems right. Um so I guess we, we can just skip right on to the persuasion aspect. Um, I see two major veins for it in this movie. And the first one has to do with Remy and his dad's back and forth. Um, Remy is very sure that he can make it work out, even though he's, he is, um, he's pretty nervy about Linguini when they meet. And again, I keep using like very human terms for this rad, but that's what the movie does to you, I guess. Um, he's very nervous about, about Linguini, but eventually the two of them create the symbiosis, which is mostly positive, uh, especially through most of the movie, it is mostly positive. And Remy is trying to convince his dad, you know, things aren't that bad, you're stuck in the past, you're old-fashioned, um, you're not really interested in me anyway, all of that stuff. And there is a, there's a very potent scene in the middle of the movie where, uh, Remy has accidentally uh, found his family again, uh, and he's with Django, and Django takes Remy into into Paris, and they stop in front of a shop that appears to be devoted just to killing rats and killing pests, and you can see, like, pelts hanging in the window. Um, and he says, this is what your precious humans do to you. This is This is what they'll do to you, and I don't want to see that happen to you. So you should maybe reconsider what you're doing. In some ways, it's a mic drop just as strong as, just as strong as anything you'd have in Twelve Angry Men. Except this is like, this is like if Lee J. Cobb or uh, Ed Begley managed to get in a mic drop that make them look good once in a while. Like there's, there is a genuine danger for Remy in what he's doing, and eventually he manages to get his dad and his brother and the colony on his side to help him accomplish this dream. Eventually, that's the way the movie goes, because, again, it's for children, and these are cartoon rats. But there is a... There, there is a real sense of back and forth here, that there is a persuasion that is not simply linear, but something which has to, to take twists and turns, and Remy has to sort of cope with the fact that if he were ever caught by a larger group, they might kill him. Like, if the, if the chefs in the kitchen who are close to Linguini and, and come to like him because he seems like he's revitalizing the restaurant, if they found out that a rat was doing this stuff, they might kill the rat or leave, which is, of course, what they do. They, they do leave the kitchen when, when Linguini tries to speak the truth to him. So that's, that's something that has always appealed to me. And, of course, I don't know, I almost, I'm almost bored doing this part because we talk about this monologue all the time, but there is, in my mind, maybe the greatest, the greatest uh, comment on criticism as a profession, like as a, as a, you know, a, a job that I have ever seen in a movie. The most mature and most thoughtful ideas about criticism, again, like ever, and it happens to be in this. Peter O'Toole voices Anton Ego. He 
is famous for not liking anything. Um, I really, I really kind of hate that I identify so much with the, you know, Linguini has that moment where he's like, you're pretty thin for a guy who hates food or who, who likes food. And Ego says to him, I don't like food. I love it. If I don't love it, I don't swallow. And I'm like, man, I identify with that a lot. <laughs> like, you know, I don't like movies. I love movies. It's hard for me to like watch stuff that I, you know, that's disappointing. Anyway, different thing. But Ego tastes this meal that, that Remy gives him, the ratatouille that sends him right back to age eight or whatever. Uh, and he's back in his mother's kitchen again. And he's so enthralled by it. And eventually, Linguini shows him Remy. And, and there is, you know, in voiceover, Remy describes what happens. And then eventually we hear the review, which is an extraordinarily positive one, in which this is like the best chef in France, Zach Gusteau's, I can't wait to go back again. But also, as much fun as it is to write criticism that smacks things down and, you know, people love the takedowns of stuff, uh, a critic's job is to find what's new and defend it. And he says, that's why I'm writing this positive review, because what's going on in the kitchen at Gusto's is new, and because it is totally different than everything else, which I think is a very nice understatement, um, very literary understatement on, on Ego's behalf, but he is saying that it is my job to defend what's new. And as unbelievable as it is for as it is for someone to think that a rat made your ratatouille, that a rat could send you back to, to adolescence with the, with the skill of his cooking. If that's, if that's the argument and it's been proved to you, then you kind of have to go with it. And it forces ego to change what he believes as well. Um, even if it is something which is, which is as unbelievable as it comes. And so he has to sort of alter the way that he thinks about things and reevaluate where he is uh, as a as a critic. To me, it's a it's a movie which is about you know not just changing minds in terms of can the rat cook? Well, anyone can cook. That a great chef can come from anywhere. But the idea more so that persuasion is not linear and that persuasion sometimes it just comes down to having an argument that is irrefutable. That sometimes it is about. You have to change your mind because the facts tell you what what happened. And sometimes that's just the way this is. I think we both like ego and feel a certain something there. Um, I don't know, I guess I'm... What you just said there, thinking now about... the Persuasion can function similarly in this as to some moments in 12 Angry Men, but the, the fact of ego being a critic... And all the baggage that comes with that title makes that moment interesting. Um, like Remy and his dad, I think that sort of two-way street is is interesting in that like it's never that the dad is proven wrong, really. Like that's still a risk, um, and I think that's important, and that that's much more realistic. Um, and but but just the the fact of Anthony Ego being a critic and having such calcified opinions already and like this is well established in, in in all of his reviews and um 
I don't know, I guess changing that mind and then completely changing an approach, not just one decision, but an entire approach. Um, I, I just find that more interesting than like, maybe that happens in 12 Angry Men, but it seems to be like, it's just this decision that changes and maybe something more happens later, but it's almost like the movie has a completely different outlook after that moment. Um, and I think like, even despite that, Remy could still be in danger. Um, like that never really leaves. And I think that's important too. That, like all of these bits of persuasion exist together. And we have ones that we pick up on, but all of them, like several of them can remain true. Um, it's not that we're built, like we're getting to one thing at the end, but the different modes and different types of persuasion exist together. And that's where like, we're constantly in that. Yeah. I think that is sort of a, that is the way that the, the movie ends after all it ends with, um, with the health inspector being released after, the muscle rat and his buddies have tied him up and and once the health inspector is released then ego loses all of his credibility because he took a step in defense of the new and and of course linguini loses his job and they lose gustos and they have to kind of start over and that happens in the last 45 seconds of the movie or something like that so there is this there is this continued persuasion that has to keep happening and you know what i kind of believe that Jack Warden's character is still going to go home and be kind of ambivalent. E.G. Marshall's character is going to come home and he's still going to have very strict ideas about behavior. And Ed Begley's character is probably still going to go home and be racist. That's persuasion in a moment. And, and it's good enough for now, but it may not be forever. There is something more, I don't know, there, there is sort of the sense that if it's a more permanent persuasion in Ratatouille, it is a persuasion that's made permanent just by like you know refreshing it every day with now remy and anton ego are in business together um and that they have to continue to to you know work together and continue to persuade each other and that's an idea that i find appealing i think you know the big difference here is that their livelihoods are at stake in a way that in the courtroom it's one life but all the other men, like, doesn't really affect them at the end of the day. You're but supposed to go in home. In Ratatouille, like, there's a lot more at stake personally. But Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying in the in the jury situation, if it goes right, you go home and you never do it again. And you don't you don't have to share anything with it. There is There are lifelong consequences for, for Remy and for Anton Ego and for Linguini and Django and all these other people and rats. Um, all these people are making decisions that will carry through all right you ready for fiddler on the roof god am i ever all right fiddler on the roof uh tevya is a russian jewish milkman in the turn of the century like the like first decade of the 1900s um living in a town called anatevka and the like the jewish uh shtetl uh area of the town it's a town which has lots of christians in it there is an orthodox church there um he, he says in the opening that the other people in the village, in fact, make a much bigger circle than the, the group of Jewish people who live in Anatevka. Um, but it is a life which seems sufficient for him. Uh, he has a wife and five daughters, three of whom are getting close to marriage age. Um, and he is a man who has a single eccentricity, which is that 
he talks, it, it sort of, ironically for a Jewish person, it comes in sort of a trinity. Uh, he talks to God, which is not necessarily eccentric. Uh, he talks to himself, not necessarily eccentric on its own, and he talks to the audience, which is maybe a little eccentric. And when you put those three together and he only knows one, uh, one of them exists in front of him, then that's what makes him so unusual. Um, it is Tevya, played by Topol, is one of the most spectacularly charismatic performances ever. Like, it's crazy. This is a three-hour movie. It's episodic. It does not have a strong plot line all the way through. The music, as is the case for most traditional musicals, most of the music in the movie happens, I would say, in the first two-thirds of it. The last third is definitely given to, like, tying stuff up. It ends on a huge bummer because all of the Jews of Anatevka are forced out of it, um, are, are forced out of the town uh, by an edict which makes them pack up and leave in the course of days, uh, a place where they have lived and their parents have lived and they're, you know, going back uh, so many years. It ends with this very sad song about, about leaving the place where they, where they were from. Um, of course, you think about where some of them go, and you think about the fact that Tevya's family, absent his third daughter, are moving to New York. Well, in, you know, 30, 40 years, that's going to feel like a great decision, given what happens to the people of Russia and the Jewish people of Russia around that time. But that's that's not something they're facing. That's not something they're looking at. Um, this is a movie which follows Tevya and his family, uh, follows especially, I mean, the marriage of his of his three daughters, uh, not the one marriage, the three marriages of his three daughters. And it is a movie where the persuasion is very heavily based on how his three daughters try to change his mind about things and how he has to change minds based on what his daughters do. Um, that's my very broad overview of this movie which somehow has not managed to talk about much of the music at all. Um, Matt, what are your Fiddler thoughts before we get into Persuasion here? Another movie which I don't think we need to do a lot of, you know, talking about the plot. I feel like this is another one where I have not found something weird. I, I would guess people are familiar with some iteration of Fiddler at any rate, whether that's one of the many stage performances or the film or whatever um i don't i just keep thinking of topol uh, like i don't i guess how it was controversial that they chose him and not um what was it zero mostel mm -hmm. or um at the time it would have been like the big broadway tevia um and I, I was looking a bit into this, and their reasoning was that they thought he would overshadow the film because of how large a personality he is. And meanwhile, we have Topol, who is, as you said, just insanely charismatic. <laughs> like, I could listen to him read anything as Tevya and be highly amused. Um, yeah, I, I, like, I don't know that there's much more I, I, I have to say about the film itself that doesn't risk us, like just reminiscing about moments in the Spiraling film. Um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess I could get my, my quote out of the way and just right. say that I think one of my favorite ones is, <laughs> I want to see Mortal's new machine. 
okay, now let's go home. <laughs> um, of course, in the middle of that, it's like, oh, I'm so terrified. Maybe when I get home, I'll faint. Um, <laughs> like, it's just such a funny movie, but I think, um, yeah, I, I, that, I don't know. That's maybe my favorite moment of just Topol, like lying reading something where <laughs> poke your head in for a second to see a sewing machine. And it's like, okay, now time to go. Um, but yeah, I like, I'm interested to see where you go with the persuasion on this one. I think there are many options. I am. I'm just going to very quickly, very quickly before we get into persuasion, I just want to shout out how good this movie is. Because I don't know, I don't know that we necessarily, like, look back on this movie and think about, like, oh, that's just, like, a great movie. And we've uh, we've actually talked about um, a couple of the, the great movies of this year already, of 1971. We talked about The French Connection and The Last Picture Show, which have both, um, which both show up on the AFI list, albeit a little low. Uh, this is the same year as A Clockwork Orange. This is the same year as Clute. The same year as Sunday Bloody Sunday. Um the same year as The Go-Between. Like, there are a lot of really terrific movies from 71. Uh, and Fiddler on the Roof, I think it's possible to, like, you know, sort of decide it's not one of the great ones. Go ahead. Uh, I want to echo that, but while I'm in the business of just saying things are the best for some artists, Sunday Bloody Sunday, the best U2 song. Well, anyway... Have you, Sunday Bloody Sunday is a weird movie. That's like it's a great movie. It's it's kind of weird. Um, and then or, oh, you know what? It is the same year as McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is the best movie out of all of them. Like there are there are so many great seventy one movies. This is not one that I think pops to mind uh, because it it doesn't have any of that new Hollywood stuff on it. It doesn't have any of that trailblazing uh, British. Uh, affectation on it and i'm saying that about sunday bloody sunday and the go-between not because they aren't great movies but because they are especially of a place in in british cinema um this this is just a great old-fashioned big long musical with wonderful performances really nice cinematography i think it's shot really well um, I love the production design of it and the costumes, like everything about it is just like, it's a really good movie. It is, it is a remarkable picture. Do not sleep on Fiddler on the Roof. It is, if it is something you haven't seen since like your eighth grade music class, I really implore you to go look at it. I think it's on Netflix right now. Um, it, it really is just a, a terrific movie and a great way to spend three hours is, is what I got. All right. Persuasion. There are so many moments in this movie uh, which are based on this idea of trying to change someone's mind. Um, I think the primary focus for it is in a weekend where Tevya decides to get his daughter engaged to, I'm going to say Lazar Wolf because I don't want to say Laser Wolf over and over again, even though they do. Um, but Lazar Wolf is the... The Butcher, and he is much older than uh, Tevye's oldest daughter, Zytel. Uh He is someone who's wealthy. Uh, he has floors, for example, and like furniture and stuff that Tevye does not have. Um, so Tevye sees an opportunity to marry his daughter to someone who can take care of her and, you know, provide for her in this t place where he is 
as he has already opined in If I Were a Rich Man, um, you know, he doesn't have very much. He is not a person with a lot of money. So it does not take a lot of persuasion for Lazar Wolf to convince Tevia to give up Zydel. But then he comes home, and the next morning he wakes up, hungover, uh, and, and Zydel is just absolutely crushed because she does not want to marry this man who's older than her. She is in love. She is in love with a, like a childhood sweetheart, essentially, someone named Model, uh, a very poor tailor. And what follows as Model like shows up at the house, first of all, one of the biggest moods I've ever seen in a movie ever, and I'm going to prepare myself a little for my own Tevye impression, but Model comes up to Tevye's like, could we talk? And Tevye has just told his daughter she doesn't have to marry this guy he made a deal with. Again, Hanover, not prepared for the day. And he says, not now, Model. I have problems. <laughs> it's one of the greatest line readings and so underrated in this movie. Just something about I have problems is, is just endlessly relatable. Anyway, what follows is this really wonderfully done scene where Zeidel and Model, mostly Model, convince Tevye to give them his uh, permission to get married. And what's so interesting about it is that Tevya goes into it like absolutely dead set against this idea of, of model who has nothing uh, marrying his daughter. And there are there are things that model says. Part of it comes from things Zydel said, has said to him before, like even a poor tailor is entitled to some happiness. Um, and ultimately, model gives one of the great one of the great ultimatums to his would-be father-in-law. When he says, I promise you, Tevye, your daughter will not starve, which really shows you what he's working with. But this really speaks to Tevye, um, who says to himself, nah, he's starting to talk like a man. He is starting to, to speak like a serious person. Tevye is, like, moved by the, by the passion that these two have for each other. Um, he is especially moved by the sight of how wrapped up in model his daughter is he like is impressed by how in love she is because i don't think he knows at this point that he loves his wife or that she might love him um that's something that really speaks to him and when tevya is thinking about stuff he likes to think about things on the other hand and this may create the image of a man who has seven or eight hands because he gets pretty high sometimes um but in this case he thinks on the other hand they're in love with each other. On the other hand, that's not what's traditional, and tradition is what anchors Tevya and, and gives him comfort and belief. And he sort of goes back and forth before finally deciding to give them his permission. When I say this is filmed in a really cool way, what I love about it is that there's a very conventionally, like, well shot, but like conventionally shot discussion between Tevya and Model. And then as he's thinking this stuff to himself, there's this establishing shot where he used to be, like, a couple feet away tops, because Tevye's kind of a close talker, uh, but he's, like, maybe a foot away from Model and, and Zeidel. This new shot puts him a hundred feet, perhaps, away from them. They're in the same spot as ever. He just has been teleported over, and that's where his brain is 
And he's just sort of working through all of this on his own, which I really love. I just love that when you're thinking about something, when you're weighing the arguments, it's almost like you go in a different place. It's almost like your brain has to be in a different spot. And I also love that this idea of persuasion is something which continues to happen to you as you work through things. It's not just that model has said something and there's like a switch that goes off. Like Tevia has to sit there and and work through it. And Tevia has to sit there and like really meditate on whether or not it's good enough argumentation, whether it's good enough proof uh, to overthrow a deal he made with a with a peer and a much wealthier and more powerful peer at that, uh, and to overthrow years and years of tradition. So that's what goes through his head and he eventually does it. One of the all-time great horror comic scenes comes when Tevia tries to convince his wife uh, because he, he goes through all this and he is like given permission for Zeidel to break this engagement and to marry someone else in the space of about 10 minutes. And then he just has this moment where he stops and looks up at the sky, presumably in God, and says, oh no, what am I going to do about Golda? Because <laughs> he realizes he now has to persuade his wife to let this thing happen too, or otherwise his wife might murder him. So he has to come up with this elaborate, incredibly funny dream sequence in which he claims to have been visited by her grandmother and many other people who say they came from the land of the dead to tell him that that Zeidel was supposed to marry Model. And what I love about it is twofold. One, that Golda goes for it, that she eventually is like, you know, if she came from the dead to tell you this, it must be serious. And what I also love is the way Tevye, like plays along with it. Again, this is just the unbelievable presence of Topol at the very end when Golda's like having her mind changed. Topol is putting a little slathering. I shouldn't say putting. He is slathering like the butter, the icing, the grease, whatever on as he sits there and hyperventilates in bed next to her to express how terrified he is. Like, there is some level of of that persuasion which is also effective. You look like you have thoughts on this, and I hope you do, because this is a great scene. I, honestly, I don't have thoughts. I'm just remembering it and dying. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I guess I started thinking about... So 12 Angry Men and Ratatouille is like, you're persuading those around you to... Uh, decide on something in particular to like believe or recognize something but like Fiddler is just as much about Tevya like persuading himself that something is true so he can keep the lie <laughs> like um I so like I guess I'm interested in that is like the the many directions in which persuasion goes in this movie and how we're always like like Tevya's our hub for all of this, whether that's persuading, you know, potential husbands, daughters, wives, God himself, <laughs> like whatever way that's aimed. Like, I, I guess I'm interested in the like kind of the webbing that Tevya's weaving with all the different persuasions and how that's a bit different than the just like, I need to persuade other people to like understand this. So, you know, we can, uh, we can acquit or that. So like I can cook or that, so I can open a restaurant, like, and not that that's not present in Fiddler, but, 
um, I don't think, I guess there's that sort of meta or like, um, like, yeah, kind of metaphysical realm to it too, where like it's persuading and also creating a reality at the same time. And what I really like about the movie as well is the way that it shows the limits of persuasion too, that at one point there is no other hand, like, Tevya manages to go along with it when his middle, or not middle, his second daughter, Hoddle, gets engaged to Perchik, who is this young radical, um, you know, who's probably, I mean, Hoddle marries well, because I have no doubt that Perchik is going to come back from Siberia and basically be like Lenin's right-hand man in a few years, so he's on the way up, even if he doesn't know it yet. Um, but she and, and Perchik convinced Tevya to let them get married without his permission, Essentially saying, we want your blessing. We would like it if you wanted us to be married, but we're not going to ask you if if we can. We will do this. And that's something he has to work through again. And again, he's pushed away from them, and, and they're standing somewhere else, and he's standing in his own little place doing his other hand business. And then finally, his third daughter, Hava, falls in love with a Christian, and the Christian likes her too. And they want to get married. They do get married. And eventually she comes back to him and says, I beg you to accept us. And he gets to the limit of it. And he's like, you know, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. And eventually he says, no, there is no other hand. And he's, he's thinking to himself that if, quote, I bend any further, I'll break. And that to me is also part of what persuasion is. That sometimes persuasion is about failing, Especially at a key moment that sometimes you cannot persuade someone to go against what they believe or what, you know, fuels them or keeps them steady. Um, eventually, he gives her some idea of forgiveness. Eventually, he, he sort of acknowledges her presence as everyone's leaving Anatevka. But even that is very muted. Um, that's a moment which is much bigger for Zeidel and Golda than it is for Tevya himself, and and he manages to maintain some level of pride there or some level of adherence to his tradition while still acknowledging that Hava is alive <laughs> and, you know, exists somewhere. Um, so to me, that's that's what's interesting about, about Fiddler is that so much of it and so much of the, the fun part of it is about the success of persuasion and about how persuasion can be kind of soul-stirring like it is in that they gave each other a pledge sequence I talked through. Or it can be very funny um, in the the sequence where Tevya and Golda go to a graveyard in his dreams. Uh, or it can it can be ineffective and, and really moving and sad um, when Tevya decides that he cannot keep a daughter over his, over his tradition. Um, so all of those things feel like they're in there. Any final thoughts on Fiddler, or do you want, like, the the short spiel for, for the two before we move on? I like what you just said there um, about tradition being persuasive on its own, and that sort of passive cultural persuasion. That, um, I mean, I think we get in the other movies an attempt to overcome that, but Fiddler's the only one that, I think, uh, Ratatouille does as well, I guess, but, like, Fiddler very explicitly gives us the vision of, like, where that just prevents, um, or like where that's too persuasive to overcome, really. Um, I think it's interesting too that we're getting persuasion in like 
sort of a dying area, whereas 12 Angry Men and Ratatouille have more of that, like, well, let's expand our, like, ideological positionings a bit. <clears throat> Fiddler, maybe to some degree, but then we're really getting that, like, it's to get out of kind of a dying place uh, and into uh, better position and um, what are the limits of what tradition will let us even do. Um, so yeah, I just think that's interesting, but go ahead, give the spiel some <laughs> porn here. Okay, the spiel. And I figured you would be because I know these are two movies you were very, very fond of. I'm very attached to both. I'm sad I have to pick one, but... It's hard for me, too. So what I look at when I look at Persuasion in a movie like Ratatouille, what I'm looking at is Persuasion and really emphasizing the twists and turns of it um, and really emphasizing what it is that, like, draws... um, Not draws, which, like, pounds the nail in. uh, What hammer blow will make the Persuasion come through... uh, Especially when it's something that forces you to really reconsider who you are or what you believed or something like that. And something that really makes a a profound personal change. And noting that it's not usually just one event. It's something which has to take time and and you have to get proof of it. Uh, That the proof that Remy can cook and that Remy is a rat who can cook is something which proves to his father without a doubt, even if it's strange, that... Remy does have reasonable, again, reasonable is a strong word, but reasonable dreams that he is not completely off his rocker. And it proves to Ego that he was wrong, that as a critic, he's been doing it wrong. And the way he did it before was ineffectual and that his sort of arch nemesis was right all along. And the proof of it is so strong that he can't, he can't walk away from that or change his mind. Uh, In Fiddler on the Roof, it is a question about how persuasion succeeds through an argument, but also succeeds because people allow themselves to be persuaded. Because Tevya and and Golda and other people, but mostly Tevya, are like able to, you know, think through things and and really take the, the arguments to heart and take them seriously enough so that they allow their minds to be changed and do the work of persuasion on themselves and how that recipe for changing a mind is also a recipe for keeping a mind shut to a new possibility as well. That if persuasion has to go through the person uh, who is being persuaded, then they have the choice at some point to shut the door on it the same way that that Tevya does in uh, the case of his daughter Hava. So that, to me, is is sort of the root of persuasion in that movie. What do you think? So that actually helped me choose. Um, it's still very close, and I'm, I'm about to be sad for the one we're going to lose, but I think I'm going with Fiddler here, and I don't want that to see like, like the Homer choice, because that's our <laughs> part of our intro song. Um, this is true. That's true, but um, but no, what you what you just said there stood out to me as Ratatouille, a very good and and uh, just a very good example of persuasion at work, and what you were saying there about like finding the right nail to hit or the right hammer blow that's actually going to do it. Um, but just seeing like the 
really the humbleness or like the modesty of an Antonigo finally being like, oh no, I need to rethink. Like this, this is actually what, um, you know, what I should be doing. But I, I'm choosing Fiddler because I'm interested in, I mean, so often we think of persuasion as someone is wrong or someone's thinking incorrectly and we just need to keep beating them until that changes. And like, you just need to find the mic drop moment, so to speak. Um, but what you were saying about Fiddler as just as much a problem as persuasion of self and that any act of persuasion has to be filtered through that other person and the things that could make us change our minds could also be the things that make us static or, or not change or, um, and, you know, not demonizing or, um, not demonizing that or making it seem like the best thing, but like, that's just sort of how it is that persuasion goes through persons. Um, and that as much a struggle is persuasion of self and, you know, how are you sticking to a certain reality or inventing a new one? Um, so for that reason, I'm picking Fiddler because of that sort of complex vision. Um, not because it's just <laughs> funny and charming throughout, though certainly it is. They're both great movies. Um, honestly, I, I, I've watched Ratatouille more. I'll probably watch it more in general. Like I really, really like that one. Um, but just thinking about the complexity of persuasion in Fiddler, uh, I'm going to go with that here. I think I think either one would have been a just choice. I am happy you chose Fiddler. Um, I kind of... I think that there's something a little more subtle about what's going on in there, though. Ratatouille is like, I gotta say, that's 90 minutes or however long it is, which is really devoted to this idea of changing minds and, and changing the way people think. Um, I think both of these movies are better movies than 12 Angry Men, so it's nice to have a, it's nice to have a scenario where we, where we do that. We've had a few in a row like that for me. Um, so yeah. I I, I want to say, too, like, I, when I said that, I don't want Ratatouille to seem, like, simplistic at all. That's not at all how I think about it. And, like, huge shouts to that for, A, just running with that premise and being like, nope, this is what we have. And, B, you mentioned this, sort of that ending vignette where, like, stuff does go topsy-turvy and they have to kind of start over so that, like, the work of persuasion is never done. Um, and it does let several different arguments exist at once, so... I don't want that to sound simplistic at all. Ratatouille is a great movie, um, and I think it's doing a lot with the category. Um, but just that that sort of the insular or like more individualistic focus of Persuasion and Fiddler is standing out to me right now. All right, so with uh, the original movie being 12 Angry Men, the 1957 Sidney Lumet movie, uh, we talked about Persuasion, about changing minds, about argument, and the two choices were Brad Bird's 2007 movie Ratatouille and Norman Jewison's 1971 movie Fiddler on the Roof. And Matt has chosen Fiddler Please, as they say from Community. Um, if you wanted to hear more about shoegaze, if that was a topic that appealed to you, or a topic you didn't know might appeal to you, that's what Matt's uh, part one was about, the 1990s classic album Loveless by My Bloody Valentine was the original on that spin list. So if you have not listened to that, definitely go do that. Uh, if you are interested in hearing more about our project, about finding links to Matt's Spotify, My Letterboxd, about finding links to our blogs where we write things sometimes, 
you can do all that and catch up on previous episodes at subtitlespodcast.com. So if you want to give that a look, uh, feel free to do so. We will see you next time.